You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. What's new in the diagnosis and treatment of multiple sclerosis? Joining us to discuss the latest treatments for multiple sclerosis is Dr. Lily Jung, Medical Director of the Swedish Neuroscience Neurology Clinic and Chief of Neurology at Swedish Hospital. Dr. Jung is a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology and specializes in the care and treatment of patients with multiple sclerosis. Dr. Jung, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you so much. Lily, a lot has changed in the diagnosis and treatment of multiple sclerosis over the course of the past 30 years. What do you feel has been the most beneficial development? Well, the most wonderful thing that has happened in the treatment of MS is the fact that we've had medications that have been, become available over the past 15 years. As you may remember, beta-seron came on the market about 18 years ago, and since then there's been a number of other medications that have been FDA-approved and used for patients with MS. So at this point, there are six drugs on the market that are FDA-approved for MS, and the exciting news is that there's a whole bunch more coming down the pipeline in the next couple of years. Lily, MRI technology has really evolved to where now we can see lesions consistent with MS in many patients. Can you explain to our listeners the term clinically isolated syndrome? Sure. Clinically isolated syndrome is when someone presents with a neurological event that does not yet qualify them for MS, but is very suspicious for MS. And when there is MRI scan changes that show up that makes that person more likely to develop MS, we're able to go ahead and treat them and hopefully change the course of the disease. How should we approach the, the patient with what we call clinical isolated syndrome? Uh, do we treat them immediately or, or hold off on treatment? Well, the patient with clinically isolated syndrome who has MRI scan changes suspicious for MS should be treated because there is good evidence to suggest that those patients will take a longer time to develop clinically definite MS, and hopefully this will affect their long-term disability risk. You spoke before a little bit about interferon and the immune-modulating drugs. Beta-serin was approved back in 1993. What have we learned about the use of interferons for MS over the course of the past 16 years? What we've learned about the interferon drugs is that they're safe to use, and we have a long history of safety data to prove that. Well, along those lines, natalizumab was implicated in three cases of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML. Should caution be used when using this drug? Well, since the drug was re-released, there's been another eight cases of PML that have been identified as being associated with natalizumab. The overall issue, however, is what is the risk when using the drug compared to the risk of developing disability associated with multiple sclerosis? Right now, there's been about 56,000 patients worldwide who've been exposed to the drug and a total of 11 patients who've developed PML. So you have to look at what is the risk of developing PML in that overall risk in that overall group, and what is, again, the known risk of developing disability associated with multiple sclerosis. Do you find it difficult approaching a patient when you're thinking of using natalizumab? I don't think it's difficult at all. Actually, most of my patients have heard about the drug, and most of my patients who are appropriate candidates for the drug at that point in their disease process are frightened enough about the potential risk of losing further function that they're willing to take that risk. 
Well, along those lines, all of the interferons and the immune-modulating drugs are injectable. Is an effective oral medication far off? Actually, we're hoping that within the next year to 18 months that the first oral drug for MS will be approved. And following that, there's a number of other drugs that are being studied in phase three clinical trials that look very promising and most likely will be approved as well. Along those lines, when chatting about and thinking about those injectable drugs, have you had a hard time where patients are really reticent about the injection? Do they have a phobia to the injection and have refused treatment because they're injectable? Absolutely. We've been very limited in our ability to get our patients onto therapies that are proven to be efficacious in their disease because of fear of needles. Even in those patients who have been compliant with their use of the injectable therapies, the development of injection site reactions and now lipoatrophy or damage to the soft tissues in which they inject have caused a lot of patients a lot of difficulty. What do you do to get around that? Well, there are a lot of things that you can do. You can take the medications out of the fridge earlier and warm it up to room temperature. There's a lot of little tricks that have been used by patients. The problem is that none of them really have been really absolutely 100% helpful in terms of reducing those reactions. How often do you follow patients with MRI as you're treating them? Well, it's interesting. You know, back in the old days when you and I were in training, I think we did an MRI scan, diagnosed the patient, and then didn't go on to follow them with MRI scans. We used to follow patients clinically. Over the last five years, we've learned that there's a lot of changes that occur underneath the surface that patients may not manifest on their exams or may be aware of. And Ultimately, those changes can cause people to develop disability in the long term. So we've started following patients essentially on a yearly basis with an MRI scan. Certainly, before you start a patient on a new therapy, they should be scanned to get a baseline. And then the question is, usually a year after they've been started on therapy, you can assess whether or not they're responding well to the drug by doing an MRI scan. Now, at your clinic, you take a multidisciplinary approach, really, to treating patients with multiple sclerosis. Is there a huge advantage to referring patients to a multidisciplinary center as opposed to treating them in an isolated practice? Well, we have a lot to offer, and generally what we try to do is work with referring neurologists or primary care physicians to help their MS patients get the best care possible. In our clinic, we have a nurse practitioner. We also have a social worker. We have trained nurses who are specialized in MS, who are able to identify the problems that MS patients tend to have, who are very familiar with the treatment and management of MS. And so we work together to provide the best care possible. In addition, we work with a team of other physicians like rehab physicians. We have a MS-trained rehab doc in our clinic. And so we're able to make sure that the patient gets the therapies that they need, gets the home health services that they need. We work very closely with the MS Society to make sure that there's services that complement what we have to provide to patients. And we work with other specialists like urologists or GI doctors who work with patients with bowel and bladder and sexual dysfunction to make sure that the patients get the best care that they need. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss the latest advances in the treatment of multiple sclerosis is Dr. Lily Jung, Medical Director of the Swedish Neuroscience Neurology Clinic. Dr. Jung, let's chat about some of the environmental factors in MS. A recent study implicates cigarette smoking as a risk factor for MS. Are there others? Absolutely. We've known for a long time that people who live in the northern latitudes are more likely to develop MS, and we've not been able to understand why. In a Department of Defense study, we've identified that vitamin D levels are associated with the risk of developing MS, and we've started now supplementing our patients with vitamin D to get their vitamin D levels more therapeutic. How about patients that migrate to northern uh, latitudes. So is it where they're born or is it could it be someone who is migrated now to a northern latitude would they be more susceptible to MS? It's actually where they spend their prepubescent years. So from the ages of say 8 to 12, where you live has a high likelihood of influencing whether or not you develop MS. Once you've passed puberty it no longer matters. With many neurologic conditions now, we're seeing the implication of cardiovascular risk factors in terms of the progression of these illnesses. Is it the same with MS? Are cardiovascular factors uh, a big a big important issue in managing MS? Well, not specifically cardiovascular disease per se, but the same things that put someone at risk for cardiovascular disease also raises the risk of someone doing poorly with their MS. You mentioned cigarette smoking. Cigarette smoking increases the likelihood of developing exacerbations increases the likelihood of developing disability, and increases the conversion of remitting relapsing MS to secondary progressive MS. So cigarettes are clearly an identified evil in uh, multiple sclerosis. The other thing is wellness and fitness. So unfortunately, a lot of our patients with MS tend to not be as mobile and therefore are less active than the average individual. Uh, fatigue also plays a big role in terms of slowing our patients down. But we've identified that the more active and in shape these folks are, the better they do in terms of their risk. So having less weight on board, for example, makes it more likely that they will have fatigue and that they will be able to be mobile. And so we work really hard in terms of the whole concept of wellness within MS. Well, while we're on the subject of environmental factors, Lily, the age-old question is, does trauma cause MS or can trauma make it worse? Often arises. As a matter of fact, it still arises. What's your opinion on this? There's no good evidence to suggest that trauma causes MS, but we certainly know that trauma is associated with a lot of stress, and physiological stress can set off an immune attack that we know is an MS exacerbation. So um, it is a problem very commonly. Patients will have car accidents or will have other injuries in which they harm themselves or get hurt. And what happens is that can sometimes be the initial event that brings to attention the fact that they have MS. Unfortunately, we're not able to prove that the trauma itself causes MS. And so it becomes a problem in terms of being able to explain to the patients why suddenly they've developed this chronic neurological disease. Well, at your clinic at the Swedish Neuroscience Hospital, do you have your patients participate in stress management? Now you've raised a real issue here. Do you do things to work with your patients for stress management, classes, uh, exercises, things such as this? Absolutely. We refer patients on for counseling. We have a MS-trained 
psychologist who helps them deal with the issues around having a diagnosis of a chronic neural degenerative condition. We have classes that we refer them to in terms of biofeedback and other ways in which to manage their stress. We also have a MS wellness program in which we try to get people into exercise programs that will help them manage some of the issues that they run into. How about the use of complementary treatments for MS? Do you use things like acupuncture or other things in your clinic in terms of complementary therapy? We don't use acupuncture, but we do refer our patients on to providers who provide acupuncture services. There are also naturopaths in the community who have a large group of MS patients, and we try to work collaboratively with them in terms of identifying nutritional issues that might be an issue. What will the diagnosis and treatment of MS look like 10 years from now, Save? Well, I'm very optimistic in the idea that there could be a cure for MS, at least sometime in our lifetime. So what I tell patients is that it's really critical to be started on, stay on disease-modifying therapies that will allow us to reduce their disability so that by the time a cure comes along, they're in the best shape possible to be cured. I think that MRI scan have shown us that we can do a better job of identifying MS and the extent of disease, and I think a lot of the technological changes that are coming along associated with MR will also be helpful. It will also be interesting to see whether or not we're able to identify other biomarkers that will help us identify how the disease is doing. So I think there's a lot of exciting things that are happening that will be uh, available in 10 years. So do you think we'll have a cure in 10 years? I'm going to ask you to stick your neck out on this one. You know, at the rate that we're going, I'm willing to bet that a cure will be in sight in 10 years. Lily, if patients opt not to participate in immune-modulating medications and interferons, what opportunities are there available for treatment of those patients? The cool thing is that there are a lot of options available currently for our patients. As you know, there's four injectable drugs that we consider as first-line therapies. Three are interferons, and the other one is glitirum or copaxone. After that, if the patient is doing poorly or is tired of doing injections, there's natalizumab or tizabri and mitoxantrone, which are available as well. And the neurologist has to look at the patient and identify whether or not the risks associated with these two drugs are worth the use of these drugs. Sometimes patients are frightened about the risks as well, and so despite our presenting the best available information, they choose not to go on to these drugs. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Lily Jung, Medical Director of the Swedish Neuroscience Neurology Clinic. Dr. Jung, thank you for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.